0: Hello, I'm Hannah Mulvaney. I'm a travelling wildlife biologist originally from the UK, currently residing in New Zealand. New Zealand's always been a place that I have been desperate to visit, mainly because of the huge expanses of wilderness, also the incredible amount of endemic bird species that are found here, nowhere else on earth. What you can hear in the background behind me right now is the dawn chorus to which I have become accustomed to waking up to every morning. The bird in the foreground is called a tui, and it's one of the most beautiful bird songs I've ever heard throughout my travels around the world. New Zealand's incredible rate of endemism not only makes the ecosystem incredibly unique, but it also makes the country's birds, lizards, insects, and giant carnivorous land snails, yes, that is really a thing, extremely vulnerable While I've been travelling throughout the country something that I've seen more often, unfortunately than these unique rare species are the millions of invasive predators You see them everywhere you go possums, hedgehogs stoats, weasels I was camping a while ago and I saw an entire family of about 8 weasels which I've actually never seen before in the wild, despite being from the UK, where they're native. This is a huge problem here, because these species have all evolved for hundreds and thousands, if not millions of years, without the presence of any native predator species whatsoever. These predators are not only decimating populations of many species, but are also driving them to near extinction. So they need help, and they need it now. So, as the scientist that I am, I started conducting research, finding an organisation called Predator Free NZ, who seem to have joined together the whole of New Zealand in their mission to rid the country of invasive predators by 2050. Not only this, something that's really amazing about this organisation is that they have complete buy-in and support from the government. Something that my conservation colleagues will tell you is unfortunately a bit of a rarity in our line of work. So I'm really happy today to be joined by Jessie Morgan, who is the Chief Executive of Predator Free NZ. Thanks for joining us, Jessie. Um, Would you like to start by giving us a little bit more information about who you are, who your organisation is, and what you guys have been up to?
1: Sure. So uh, I'm Jessie Morgan from the Predator Free New Zealand Trust, and we're a non-profit organization uh with the set up really to inspire and encourage new zealanders to get involved with predator free new zealand and make it accessible for them to do their bit so make sure they get the right information the access to the right tools and um up-to-date information really of what's happening as we progress towards predator free 2050
0: okay so um can you so a lot of our viewers are kind of based all around the world and I'm obviously based in New Zealand right now, but it's a very unique environment. It's a really unique ecosystem. There's some amazing biodiversity here. Can we kind of track back to um, the the origins of that kind of biodiversity and just kind of discuss what there is here in New Zealand and why there is such an ambitious project to protect it?
1: Sure. I mean, I guess if you go right right back, um, New Zealand broke away a long time ago. And so from, from you know, Zelandia and Oceana. And so it's been, it's been an island nation for for a long time. And as a result, our species here have evolved um, in that environment, which uh, quite unusually has no mammalian creatures. So we're really an island nation and the land of birds, really. I mean, we, we have some great other species, bats, frogs, lizards, insects. But our main, you know, what what we're really known for, our our birds. And I guess the thing with with our birds is because they never had mammalian predators, they've, they've evolved these, um, you know, they, they've evolved or, or adapted to avian predators. So they have things that are they have adaptations that are great if you're uh, being attacked by a bird, but not so good if you're being attacked by a mammalian predator. So. They freeze is one of the key things they do when they're threatened so they stay still and freeze. Um, They also have quite um, a unique scent and that's how they attract themselves to each other Um, but for a mammalian um, predators that's awesome because I can they can just track their way straight to the birds but unfortunately as humans arrived here they also brought with them a range of predators to either either accidentally or intentionally. So when the when the first humans arrived here, they bought the kiori or the Polynesian rat with them. And they also bought the Polynesian dog with them. And those animals started wreaking havoc really on our native birds, our endemic birds. And um, and then when the European settlers arrived, that was, they just bought a whole nother range of, of predators. So, th- so they bought You know, know, unintentionally, they bought mice and and rats, another couple of um, species of rat. But they also then bought some cats to control the rats. Um, They introduced rabbits for food and and, um, fun. And they introduced um, possums for fur. Then they introduced stoats and ferrets to control the rabbits. And um, they introduced hedgehogs to control the slugs and snails in their garden. So all those things... All those introduced predators, um, all mammals, and all have an impact on our, um, our birds who are really um, poorly adapted um, to defend themselves against those, those creatures.
0: So with regards to those kind of predators, it's, it, all of those kind of proliferated, didn't they? So they, you introduce a few and then they are now completely widespread. So how big actually is the problem in New Zealand?
1: Yeah, well, um, a a lot of those uh, predators came from countries with with um, greater extremes in their climate, and, and New Zealand's actually quite a temperate climate, and um, our trees and and plants also aren't adapted to um, you know browsing from those kind of species, and so and so the animals here actually just thrived; they um, had a great time. And now they are all over the country, really. Like the the predation is the the main issue for, for the survival of our native species. And New Zealand has the highest rate of threatened species in the world. So we have the highest level of endemism, but we also have the highest level of threatened species. So... We're in a real important position at the moment. Where if we can control these predator numbers, uh, reduce them, and eventually eradicate them, then then our native species will be able to come back. But if we don't do anything, we we'll, we'll lose them. Um, in terms of your question around how widespread they are, um, cats, for example, have been you know they go right from our um, sea level, from our beaches, right up to our alpine um, zones. So, and stoats have been shown to do the same. So, so, there's nowhere safe, really. And I guess also when you take a, a lens of a climate change um, lens in there as well, then as we get milder winters and, and we, you know, they, they can extend, extend further and they don't get the natural die off over winter. So, and our trees fruit more often, there's more food around. So, so there's a real really interesting dynamic between the predator numbers and, and climate change too.
0: And there's already been a few extinctions in kind of recent history as well, hasn't there, within New Zealand?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, if we go back to when, when the first humans arrived, there were a number of awesome species here. There was a moa which is is about um, two meters tall. The giant mower, the back's about two meters tall. And then the the neck goes to about maybe three and a half meters. They're a little bit, I'm I'm kind of reluctant to say this, but they're a little bit like an emu or an ostrich to paint a picture, but they're like a big meaty version of that. So they were relatively slow moving and easy to catch. So they were probably made extinct by being hunted as a good food source and and they were widespread around the country so so they were extinct they were they were extinct there was also a giant eagle called the hast eagle and they hunted the moa so obviously there's a link there that as there wasn't enough food around as the moa numbers reduced and in more recent years we've we've definitely lost other other species and, and we now have a few species that in our kind of classification system are known as data deficient. So we have a, a bird which is called the South Island Kōkakau, and it's a grey bird with a blue wattle. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there, there's an award actually or a, re- a reward that if you get a photo and prove that it still exists, there's I think a $10,000 reward for that bird. So there's there's some birds, there's also some awesome stories like the takahe, which is a ground-dwelling Quite, I'm trying to explain up for an international audience but like quite a big I don't want to say chicken but like a bush chicken a big fat blue bush chicken and they thought they were extinct and then in the mid to late 60s I think they found a population of them. Just a really small remnant population, and and now after a bunch of work that's gone into those species, protecting them, helping their breeding programs, understanding, you know, getting the genetics, swapping eggs, or doing all that type of thing. Those those birds are now, you know, in, increasing. It's a it's a slow it's a slow increase, and it takes time, but yeah, they are increasing. And and the other positive story around that is the kakapo, which is very susceptible to predation. It's a flightless parrot made famous for um jumping on david attenborough's head and having a bit of a good time when he was recording but the kakapo also was they could tell the numbers were just declining significantly pretty quickly due to predation so they took the birds off some islands and put them on predator free islands Uh, now those numbers are are coming back and are climbing They've, they've undertaken an intensive kind of breeding genetic program to really get and um, get those bird numbers back and a couple of years ago they had the biggest breeding season that ever had and there's also the other issue with kākāpō in particular is they are running out of predator-free spaces to put those birds for them to survive long term so they have a couple of predator-free islands where it suits in terms of the food source and the climate and all of that and now they're really, because of this bump of breeding season and the success of the program, they're really scrambling to find other suitable habitats for um, those birds to live.
0: So something you've kind of mentioned a couple of times are these predator-free islands. Mm-hmm. And obviously an island is kind of defined mostly, it conjures up images of, of an offland landmass. But a lot of the predator free islands within New Zealand are actually on the mainland. So what do they kind of look like? How how are they how are they created and and how do you guys ensure that they are predator free and and manage to kind of maintain those those islands to ensure that anything that's being relocated back into them will have a good time within there and and not kind of just be trapped in with a load of predators?
1: Yeah, so I guess New Zealand's got a long history in this island eradication space, and in in 1964, I think a little bit accidentally, a forest and bird worker um, who's one of, forest and bird's one of our longest standing conservation organisations, it's about, I think it's over 100 years old now, and so Maria Island in 1964 was one hectare, so pretty small, they put out a whole bunch of rodenticide, and they came back and all the rats were gone, and they suddenly thought, oh wait a minute, we can eradicate rats from these islands, so, so then over the next, you know, few years or what, the last kind of 50 years, New, Ze- New Zealand has been increasing the size of the islands that it is re- removing predators from. In 2001, predators were removed from Campbell Island, which which is a sub-Antarctic island and is 11,000, just over 11,000 hectares. I guess because of that s- success on offshore islands, and now of New Zealand's offshore islands, over 10% are uh, predator free so and that's increasing all the time those those island because we know we now know how to do it so we can go and do that and often there's there's no human inhabitants there so it's relatively easy you don't have the social license element at the same time but then what happened in the late 90s is people were starting to think well if we can do these on offshore islands how could we do the same thing on the mainland and they created this concept of mainland predator free islands which are really a predator-proof fence protecting a certain area so that the predators can't reinvade. So you fence an area with a very special type of fence to stop any predators getting in. Then you do, in essence, an island eradication within the fence and ensure you've removed all the predators and then you reintroduce species or some species that may have been in there already can breed and their numbers can increase. And what has happened as a result of that fence is that the numbers inside the fence increase so much that they have to expand beyond that fence line to find other habitats to live and breed in, which means that they're living in areas, the birds now are living in areas that aren't protected by predator proof fence. And what's happened is that local communities and conservation groups have set up kind of halos around the outside of those fences And do their own predator control they can't eradicate we don't yet have the technology to kind of eradicate and keep them away that's coming though but with intensive trapping you can get the the predator numbers down to a low enough level that the birds can safely breed but yeah so so that concept of the birds actually expanding beyond the fence and the communities really protecting them in the halo zones led us I guess to this predator free vision which is if you can do those halos and, and get them bigger and bigger, at what point can they all join together so the whole of New Zealand is predator-free? That's not quite how it's working in practice in terms of rolling out the predator-free vision. So so I guess for people that are unfamiliar, the predator-free vision is to, to remove mustelids, so, so stoats, ferrets, and weasels, rats, of which we have three species of rats here, and possums, which were introduced for a fur trade, but actually wreak havoc on our on our trees mainly on our fauna but have been shown to eat eggs and chicks too so so they're the kind of the target species for predator free 2050 and the idea is that if you remove them from new zealand we can protect our borders because of our island nature and we don't have to keep doing the work we can do it once get rid of them and and then the native birds will will thrive or the native species and and that's i guess what those mainland islands and predator-free offshore islands have shown us that you don't need to do a huge amount of work once you've removed the predators things reintroduce themselves naturally and they come back which is great so if we provide the right environment then those species can can come back themselves so the predator-free vision is is really to do that across our, our main island islands which is means across everyone's Homes and places people live, work and play, Cross farmland, conservation land, forestry. So it's it's quite a challenge due to the different li- land types, but it is really, I think New Zealanders are really getting behind it. And I, th- I think it will be much more easy to achieve as we're getting that social license and the tools and technology are catching up with that.
0: Yeah, I mean, something that's really struck me since being in New Zealand is actually how involved the community are with this vision. Everybody here seems to know what an invasive species is, whereas back in the UK, we've got an abundance of invasive species there absolutely everywhere. I've worked on many projects to try and eradicate them. But if you speak about invasive species to the general public, they generally don't really know what you, they couldn't name an invasive species. They couldn't really tell you the impact that they have on the native species that we have. And it's quite a it's it's been really encouraging because when you have such a an ambitious vision, you do need community involvement. You need people to really be getting behind it. And it's something that has been quite shocking, but in a really encouraging, really optimistic kind of way. So that must be a really wonderful thing for you guys as an organization to know that you do have public backing and there's so many people getting involved.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know why we have that knowledge of our native species more so than other countries. I mean, we celebrate our national bird, the kiwi. We call ourselves kiwis. So we have a bit of a connection to that bird as a start. And then I guess it's a little bit through our, our education system. And we historically have been, you know, quite big into the outdoors and bushwalks and having a lot of green space around. And so, so those other species are, are around. but people can't protect what they've never experienced before and and you know you we need to kind of share the knowledge of of the range of species that are out there and the species that are doing them harm or or damage to their populations and and so you know we've we've got although we might be quite good we have got a long way to go in in terms of understanding the range of our native species most people could probably can ha- name a handful and and there's a lot of native species out there that that need protection but we also for some reason innately care about it so people get really involved and one of of the things we've tried to do with predator free vision is is really make it mainstreamer not don't make it the preserve of the kind of granny conservationists so you start spreading the word but then when the tools are available to do an eradication at scale those people will be more open to letting someone come and check under their boats and check through their garages to make sure there are no predators in there or put certain tracking devices out. So the social license is critical.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think once people start seeing results and start seeing that conservation works, it's really, really easy to get behind a a project for certain. Something that you kind of touched on, obviously, a lot of people when they think about this project will think okay so how are they doing it and we've touched on the the trapping kind of within urban environments and I personally went out and volunteered for DOC a few weeks ago and and cleared some traps from the forest so a lot of the walks that you go on in the bush in New Zealand will have these uh, wooden traps along the edge of them and that 's kind of the job of of a local volunteer group or it will be Doc who are actively monitoring those traps and and removing them, rebating them, and kind of removing those predators from those areas but Obviously not everywhere is really kind of easily accessible for people to go and check those traps. And if you haven't been to New Zealand as a, as a listener, it's a very wild place. Like it is exactly what it looks like on the postcards. (laughs) So there are areas that are just so densely forested that it's, it's kind of impossible to get to those places. So what are they, what are your kind of techniques for, for those areas where you can't, can't go into them?
1: Yeah, so one of the main tools that's used at the moment at scale is is 1080, which is a, a toxin, a naturally occurring toxin, actually, that occurs in plants around the world, but it's highly effective on mammals, and one of the benefits of that in New Zealand is we don't have any native mammals, so we're able to use it, whereas lots of countries aren't able to use it because they have endemic mammals. I mean, you're right. The, this landscape in New Zealand it can be really rugged, it can be really remote, and if you're trying to do things at scale, trying to use traps that have to be checked once a month, is quite a people people intensive method. So, how the islands were eradicated, we were using a, a rodenticide called bradificum, and so that was t- that's a typical toxin that we use on island eradications. The issue with bradificum on the mainland is that it bioaccumulates in species. So, if other animals if they get a non a sublethal dose it will bioaccumulate within that animal and the next thing that that animal you know it then accumulates in them so so it's got its downsides despite it being highly effective 1080 doesn't bioaccumulate so if something got a sublethal dose it breaks down pretty quickly it breaks down in water so from an environmental point of view it, it doesn't remain in the environment for a long period of time and it's it's highly effective on possums, rats, and a bicycle of stoats and cat. The the issue I guess around 1080 is it can be a bit controversial and I think the main reason that it's controversial is that we drop it from a helicopter. And so if it was in bait stations that were hand placed on the ground, I don't think it would be anywhere near as controversial as it is. And the kind of the anti-1080 voice has been quite loud in New Zealand. And the scientific kind of pro voice has been quite quiet in the past, And so the the discussion around why we need to use it, where it's effective, its pros and cons, has been pretty quiet. People kind of hid, thinking that if we hid, it would go away. But we actually need to get better at telling the story of why we use it and what it's useful for. It's a really effective tool at scale. It's cost effective. And currently, there's an organization called Zero Invasive Predators, or ZIP, New Zealand that's doing some great work around 1080 and using it to get to an eradication point so use it using it at a higher concentration over a couple of drops and then having an area that is actually totally eradicated from with using 1080 and that's really useful so I think in future where we have areas that we can defend because I guess on the mainland you can't do an eradication unless you can defend the area, and that's that's one of the core concepts of eradication. So islands are great because they're naturally defended by water. Fence sanctuaries in New Zealand are also great because of predator-proof fences. But we need to get to a stage now where we can add a, um, eradicate peninsulas, valleys that are surrounded by rivers and and are defendable either by natural landforms or by not using a predator-proof fence because predator-proof fences are really expensive. The impractical across large areas to install, etc. So, so by using this, by doing research and investigating how we can use 1080 a couple of times, and they call it 1080 to zero. So you basically use it a couple of times, you eradicate the species, the rats and possums from the area, and then you don't have to do it again. And I think from a public perspective, that's much more palatable. If you're just going to do it once the innovation and the tools and technology in the space is really important and encouraging innovators right through the spectrum from you know computer engineers through to backyard tinkerers through to product designers toxicologists all that we need all those people working and thinking about this problem which is why that when the government in 2016 announced a predator free 2050 vision it was really important as a catalyst for all those other areas to come together. So the interagency, government agency working together towards this government strategy of Predator Free 2050, it makes it mainstream. And, you know, we've we've been really lucky with that government support and making it a national vision and people understanding that it is achievable and it's something we can do. But also it's something we've all got a role to play in. And even we can't sit back and wait for government or scientists to do this work we actually all need we've all got a role so our farmers in particular have a large land area in New Zealand so how we do effective predator control on those areas are really important and how we get farmer support is really critical.
0: What's really amazing about this vision is that Predator Free 2050 it's so tangible here and as as a scientist I try and be really optimistic and when I hear these carbon goals by 2030 and all of this kind of stuff it is a it's something that i wish would happen and it's something i try and be optimistic about and it's something that you really hope governments around the world get behind Mm. however those goals always seem to be extended and modified to suit what's kind of going on within the country's economy and things like that whereas this goal seems very it's so tangible and it's being worked towards by so many people there's so many stakeholders and everybody seems to be really really behind it I just kind of wondered obviously you've mentioned these that birds come back into the people's gardens and things like that and that really proves that there is success happening but how are you as an organization and kind of volunteer groups and all of the stakeholders actually measuring the success of, of the project so far?
1: yeah i mean there's a, there's a few ways you can measure it, but you're right. I mean it's tangible, but we also need those number those birds to be around to repopulate your back garden if you you know if you do your predator control but there's no tui in, in you know their home range, then you're not going to get them in your garden regardless and and so the other thing we do a lot of in New Zealand is translocation, so as populations get bigger of our kiwi or, or other birds. We'll relocate them to other ap- appropriate environments or habitats so that they can start repopulating those other areas. There's, I mean, there's a lot. There's a huge way to go here, and that, you know, we need better education around dog ownership and cat ownership. Cat cats are really challenging because they're a very well loved pet in New Zealand, and we have the highest ownership of cats in the world, and the feral cats and stray cats. a huge problem and we need to be able to control them so so we need some of these social changes which will take a while to get people to keep their cats home and realize that that's the best place that's the you know the safest place for their cats to be as well and then the wildlife can also thrive so so there's definitely some challenges out there and you know i guess eradication is binary it's either there's either predators or there's not but a suppression model of having rat numbers or stoke numbers at at certain at low densities across the countries is will help the birds maintain and grow population but it means you've got that ongoing workload of having if you're maintaining suppression then you have to go and check your traps or, or do your tops and drops you know relatively regularly to keep the numbers down
0: You've just mentioned about the lizards that you guys have here. So New Zealand is really known as the land of birds and there's such an amazing diversity here, but there are other species that will benefit off of the predator-free New Zealand vision. So is there a bit of a focus on them in certain areas or are there specific projects that are aimed directly towards them rather than the birds? Or is it kind of, if you protect an area, then it's, it's likely those species might be in there already or there's a bit of both so some areas
1: that, that are known to have really rare lizards they do predator control and you know do it specifically for the lizards so they do and, and the birds benefit and then in the other and other examples people are their main focus might be on the birds and then they have uh, you know the lizards benefit but it's really it's kind of whole whole of ecosystem really because when you remove the predators, the forest also benefits and the plants also benefit. But we, you know, we've got some really cool things. We've got these huge snails that can grow up to about the size of a burger patty, and, and they're carnivorous. So yeah, so so there's some really fascinating, weird and wonderful creatures And here. And, you know, we've got frogs that don't live in water and are just not what you and I would consider a frog. And same with our bats, you know, our bats aren't these big fruit bats that you see overseas they're they're really little and and they forage on the ground often and you know so it is kind of the weird and the wonderful live live here a little bit and it's it's enabling all of them to come back and and thrive and and removing removing predators but also removing things like hedgehogs have quite a big impact and eventually you know, limiting the range of deer and goats will also be important so our forests can really regen- regenerate without the, them grazing and, and damaging the forest. So whilst we have a focus on on the core kind of mustelids lids and, and rats and possums, there is a much wider impact here. And as those other things start to thrive, I think we'll get pressure from community and the public to, to start to extend to other species that are also doing damage.
0: And I guess the reforestation stage is is definitely what comes after because working in different countries. So I've just been working in Australia for the past two years and there's all of these different methods in place that are, so you do predator removal, you also do reforestation and and that kind of thing, because there's less, there's almost less density there because they have such a huge land mass. Mm. You can focus on, on specific things. So I guess after the predators are removed, it can then, the, the conservation work can then move on and and evolve to to re- involve more different kind of techniques.
1: Yeah, I mean predator control is definitely just one element and of the restoration and and planting and creating habitat for the native species is also also really important. Um, and and you know it's, it's all that kind of one is from a strategic point of view from local or region or local or central government. Um, And planting certain areas, but farmers and and individual landowners can also make a difference. And I I think there's a real move in New Zealand to plant more native species, which therefore provides more food sources for the birds and better habitat and things like that. We've got a billion trees program here, planting a billion trees. There's a whole lot around water quality and and riparian planting, and, and all of that creates good habitat. But if you don't do predator control in your riparian planting, you create great predator habitat. So as all ecosystems, they're intricately linked. And and so they do need to be considered as a whole. But it's quite nice having this banner and this clear vision of Predator-Free 2050. We're not trying to restore New Zealand to what it was like 500 years ago. We're not going to suddenly be, you know, get rid of all cars, although electric cars would be awesome. So we realise that the, it's returning the areas, you know, being having sustainable land use and, and having areas that we're, they are unproductive land to to replant it in, in natives and natives and bring those ecosystems back and and help the species the native species thrive. So it is it is a much wider vision, I guess. But but the banner of twenty fifty allows people to really connect underneath that and feel like they can contribute.
0: Something that's really that's really struck me since I've been in New Zealand is how much cause for optimism there is here. As I've kind of travelled travelled around the world and worked in so many different habitats and and different ecosystems and seen various different levels of community involvement being in New Zealand's actually really reignited my my optimism and made me feel like there's cause for hope so I really hope that people that are listening are actually getting that vibe as well and knowing that if you do get involved in a project and if you get the support of your community and and help help each other out then there is actually so much that can be done on the ground and it isn't just scientists that can do this work it is everybody Mm. and even that kind of scientific outreach is is really crucial for getting the community involved and and ensuring that people understand the science by communicating it really well Mm. it is really for that kind of involvement and it will encourage the community to to get involved and to to do the work that historically kind of scientists have not not kept to themselves but also has been scientist focused there is so much more that that can be done at this point in time and can be handed over to the community.
1: Yeah, yeah, I am totally with you on that. I think sharing the science in an easily digestible manner for lay people is is really important, and also making the actions really accessible. So making them easy to do, uh, not take too much time, making the tools easy and and usable. All that, all those things are really critical in terms of engagement. If you make things too hard, you you're never going to get people engaged. So if you know, it's like having some really easy first steps that people can take. And then when they're ready for more, feed them the next step. But just just start off easy and accessible. Start small, I guess, is the other thing. And, and the people are really willing, as we have found, if, if you bring it to them rather than them making them go to conservation. You know, like one of the beauty, one of the amazing things about predator-free and people doing it in their backyard is they don't have to travel. They can do it. They can make it part of their everyday lives, like they put out their recycling. And I, and I think, you know, there's some things like that, you know, let people plant rare plants in their garden and let let people bring it to them rather than making them go go to conservation. And having that vision that they feel like they're part of a bigger vision. Definitely having some successes that we've been, you know, you can communicate and, and that's, that's really useful too. So, I think you know the communication with community and and listening to them and and really consulting with them genuinely and ha- having them on board and having their voices heard is also really critical and it does feel like this is a grassroots movement and it really started from the grassroots and now it has government support which will help us tack- tackle the bigger problems we're not going to solve it by trapping in people's backyards or imp- and so it needs to be a national vision and these large areas are, are critical but people also need to realize that just doing the backyard, just doing the large areas won't solve it either. So it's, you know, everyone's got a role and in the big picture. And I think communicating that's critical also.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for talking to, to me and to the Earth to Humans podcast audience. (laughs)
1: <laughs> thanks Hannah hopefully by the when you you know if you ever leave and then come back you'll notice a significant difference when you come back you know in our in our bird life and then in our insect life if you dig in the ground a little bit
0: <laughs> amazing well thanks again for for chatting to us <laughs> thank you hello Hannah Mulvani here co-producer of today's episode along with Serena Simmons music on today's episode was provided by freemusicarchives.org and the bird song was provided by the New Zealand Department of Conservation. Please head on over to Facebook and follow Earth to Humans to keep up to date with everything that our podcast does as well as on Twitter and Instagram at Wildlands Collective. Thank you for listening.